Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mothman Prophecies of Sparrows podcast, season two, episode three. We are all still in quarantine. I'm considering buying PlayStation 4. Should I do it? I don't know. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't know either. Welcome, everybody, to the Mothman Prophecies of Sparrows podcast, season two, episode three. We are all still sitting in quarantine at our respective houses, apartments, condos throughout Toronto. Dwellings. I am your designated host, John, as always, joined by Dan and Alex. Hey. Yo. Everybody is... uh, What an intro. <laughs> Going slightly slightly stir crazy, being stuck inside for three weeks. I can't tell if Jeff. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I can't tell my, if I'm enjoying it or not enjoying it. My name is Jeff. I think there's a there's a fine line between enjoying it and not enjoying oh, it at this point. Yeah. It's I'm I'm gone. Like I'm I'm over it. Like it's meltdown days every day. So whatever, you know? Just surviving at this point. It is what it uh, is, and we're we're doing what we can. With yeah, we've got. I didn't have internet for the whole day until about twenty minutes ago, so it's been a long day. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, today we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, dance pick for this week, which is by a Canadian. I don't know what would you consider him a rock legend. It's funny because <laughs> rock icon, um, <laughs> kind of, but not really. And it's like I. Granted, I we're, we're we're talking about Matthew Good. I'm a big fan, but also it's kind of like he's got part one and part two and almost part three of his career at this point. So yeah. I can't really tell what he's more famous for. Well, I know? feel like in the 90s, he was a pretty big deal, uh, especially in the Much Music days and whatnot. In he, like the uh, alt rock yeah. kind of yeah. area. Yeah. Back but when radio only in Canada. It oh. was kind of like him and Our Lady Peace and I, Mother Earth. And, and like maybe 11. Sloan. Yeah, yeah, Finger 11 and Sloan, maybe. Yeah, they were and kind of the, the, the big, the big five. Yeah. yeah. They're the big yeah. five. Um, Canadian radio rock, we'll say. And it's interesting to me because all of those bands have gone on to very different things, you know? Uh, arguably, I would say Our Lady Peace would probably ended up being the biggest of them. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, mm-hmm. Finger 11 had some U.S. success, so it's kind of hard to really say. I mean, having um, it been uh, WrestleMania uh, this past weekend, Finger Eleven. I don't know if this is still a thing because I haven't followed wrestling in a while. But he, Finger Eleven did do Kane's walkout music. 
Really? That's, yeah, so that's a pretty, I mean, for them. Kane is the Undertaker guy, but with a mask, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. His, okay. His, his so-called brother. Uh, okay. Wrestling aficionados, please don't hurt Rob me. Butcher, don't. Don't get upset. <laughs> yeah. Or please send me a message once you hear this and let me know if uh, the- How message. off we are. Oh, yeah. no, just send it all to Dan. All to yeah. Dan. Just send I, it all but to I Dan. won't understand it all. I won't get it. Anyway, um, anyway. Yeah, so today we're, we're talking about uh, Matthew Good, specifically the Matthew Good Band, which was the initial, uh, I guess, group. Startup before, of everything. Yeah, yeah before yeah. he broke off doing his solo stuff. That being said, though, with Matthew Good being in the Matthew Good Band, he still did a majority of the songwriting. Yeah, and, uh, if not you know, all of it. If not all of it, yeah. And it's... Uh, We'll get to that, I'm sure, later on yes. in the podcast about um, how the band operates and whatnot. And uh, specifically, we are looking at the album "The Audio of Being," which was the final album that came out under the Matthew Good Band moniker, uh, which came out back in 2001. So this is coming We're up on 20 almost years, 20 years, almost, yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I mean. When I look at Matthew Good Band releases, this one I don't think got as much uh, commercial uh, or got as much of a commercial push as, say, Beautiful Midnight did. Beautiful Midnight was like the, the really big one. Hello, Time Bomb, Load Hello Me Time. Up, Future is X-Rated, Yeah, uh, Strange Days. Strange Days, yeah. Like it had yeah. the big hits. It went two times platinum. It yeah. sold over 300,000 copies in Canada. So it was a pretty big release. And then you look at the audio being that came out two years later. Um, it only went gold, selling only 73,000 or so copies. No, well, they also and, didn't get to tour it. and No, that's or the anything big thing. really as much. Like not Absolutely. to jump the gun a little bit there, but yeah. like they, the record came out at the end of October and they broke up in, I think, January of the next year. Right. February, sorry. February 2002. So they did one tour and two of the guys that were in the band when this record was put out quit like a week after the the record came out so it was just like a fucking turbulent nightmare um but yeah i have like a i don't know how far we want to go with this i wrote like two different versions of kind of like recapping stuff so depending on how detailed we want to get i could go one way or the other but i tried to like pick out some interesting things before we go too far to be completely honest um i don't know depending on where our listenership is primarily based if it's a lot of people in the states or friends in the states that are listening to this podcast may not be as super familiar with matthew good as we are up here in canada um so it might be nice to give a bit of a background okay well i'm canadian as well and i don't like i know a little (laughs) bit about him but i was gonna say for alex's sake let's for alex's sake too but i was was gonna say john and i are kind of like in i would argue to say in the youngest area of what his fan zone kind of would represent too so it wouldn't be that shocking for people that are below our ages or like into their 20s like mid-20s to be like who the fuck is this guy yeah so um yeah i tried to like when i was 11 so yeah and that that's the thing is like for me i got that record for christmas but you wouldn't have had the experience of seeing his videos on much music every 45 minutes for an entire summer you know and like yeah so the exposure rate is different. And in the States, mm-hmm. they don't have exposure to them really at all. And I could touch on that really quickly. But um, a couple of interesting things that I thought was kind of cool to bring up. The first record that Matthew Goodband did together, 
is kind of how the band came together. Like Matt Good wrote a bunch of songs, had a couple of people that were going to play with him, and they hired what's his name, David Jen, I think his name is. Are you talking um, about um, yeah, last the guitarist the, uh, guy? Are you talking yeah. about last of the Ghetto Astronauts? Yes, I am. Yeah, uh, which came out in 1994, 95, or something. 95. Like that. Yeah. Um, so when they recorded that, uh, you listen to it, you can't really tell, but hilariously, there was no electric guitars used on that record. They were all acoustic, reamped through, like plugged into an amp through a Marshall, and then recorded like that. So the guitar tone, granted, it's 1994 or whenever it was recorded, is a little rough. But then when you <laughs> hear it kind of like that, it's kind of an interesting factor in there. But yeah, I the band didn't know that. wasn't, yeah, it's, in, it's weird. Um, but the band wasn't really a band. It's not like a bunch of friends got together and started writing, writing songs. It was like they weren't necessarily manufactured to be together. It almost just kind of comes off like they were people that were handy, that were available, and could do the job. Well, and yeah, isn't that kind of like how the Foo Fighters came about? If you look at sort say, of yeah. Dave Grohl I mean, writing the, the self-titled Foo Fighters album while they and were, then just fucking poached people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Basically, got half a Sunny Day Real Estate on board and brought in uh, what's his nuts who played with uh, Nirvana for a little bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I I don't think, especially in the '90s, I don't think that was that uncommon. But no. for a Canadian band, some for some reason, I feel like that's uncommon. You don't hear of a lot of bands where it was just like, you know, the singer, excuse me, wrote all these songs, did all this work, and then just hired people to play in behind. Usually you hear that about like Avril Lavigne or somebody that's kind of in that zone. And with this situation, it was more of like the record label came and was like, I like this unit here instead of we like you, Matthew Good, and we're going to take you and we're going to fix you with, you know, a bunch of these professionals. Yeah, well, it was it was more of a traditional, like, a band signed a record deal, quote yeah. unquote, but the band that was together was Matt Good and the other people he could kind of, like, find, which, um, interestingly enough, is uh, Ian Brown is the drummer, and yeah. he's now playing with Matt Good again as a solo guy. Right. So, like, he's in uh, his yeah, backing that. band. Which is interesting because, like, they had, uh, I'll get to, they had like a pretty big falling out. So, the other thing I thought was really interesting is that um, Last of the Ghetto Astronauts was actually just kind of like put out themselves. Mm -hmm. They didn't have really a label that came as as a big backer or anything. And when they finally did sign a deal, which would have been, I think, two years after uh, Ghetto Astronauts came out, it was with a label called Private Music, which is owned by somebody else at the time. Gotcha. And then, so they started to go and do underdogs. And this is the second interesting point I found. Halfway through um, uh, starting pre-production, or I think right at the start of pre-production, the label they were on was bought out by BMG. And instead of him having a record deal, they just paid him out all of his advances and let him go and do whatever he wanted to do. And so That's the underdogs, dream. right? Yeah, you get free money. Yeah. But underdogs, he did the exact same thing. He paid for all the recording themselves. They did the whole thing. And then they ended up releasing it through Polygram, which doesn't exist in Canada anymore, I don't think. I think it was bought by Warner. Uh, Polygram, um, yeah, because it's a Dutch. Yeah, originally. But they uh, used company. to have, they used to have like a Canadian home, a US, kind of like, you know, Universal does still uh, now. It says here that they were sold to Seagram and reincorporated under the Universal Music Group. Oh, so, okay. So, so they're bought by Universal. Yeah, one yeah. of one of the big three. 
Yeah. One thing that I find really intimidating about being in conversations with you guys about this stuff is how much you guys know about record labels and all that. Stuff. Like, I have <laughs> zero idea. Like, I know who Universal Music is. I don't know can who I any of the you, fucking other like, people you talked about just were. <laughs> can uh, I give you the best friend advice ever? Sure. Don't care. Just don't care about oh, it. Oh, I don't care enough just about don't it. Care. To, uh, <laughs> I just thought it was decent to bring up here. Alex, that, I'm like, going to give you a, a spoiler. I'm, uh, I have like five Wikipedia tabs open. Oh, I also. I am a hundred percent. I am a hundred percent cheating right now. I have two screens going right now and my phone. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. So anyway, <laughs> I'm going to jump back into my uh, quick. I'm going to speed this up. Um, basically, the audio of being uh, was uh, obviously the follow up to the big record. As we said, it was you know he won Juno's for it. It was. Did you say double platinum? Uh, yeah. No triple. Yeah. Triple platinum. No double platinum. Um, sorry, double platinum. Yeah. Um, so the story goes with this whole thing is during the explosion of Matt Good, especially in Underdogs, but especially with Beautiful Midnight, um, he was very hesitant about like the fame and kind of stuff that went along with that. And he was suffering through like crippling anxiety and crippling depression. And uh, in hindsight, was suffering through a lot of like, because he's bipolar and was diagnosed bipolar in, I think, 2008 or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, he does have some mental trauma that he uh, yeah. deals with. Um, and so what's funny, it's, well, it's not funny, but what's interesting about the audio being is he, when this all started happening, he started openly talking about the fact that he was like, just not in the right place. He was not eating. He'd stay up for three or four days at a time and was just like, stressed writing and vomiting all the time and just like destroying himself well i also and, read that he got like super like physically sick during this as well yes exactly and he uh he in at the beginning of writing about this he was uh diagnosed with sarcoidosis sarcoidosis yeah, i don't know how to say that word yeah sarcoidosis <laughs> sarcoidosis there you go yeah yeah um, which is like a pretty for anybody that uses their voice at all is a pretty terrifying thing to begin with so yeah, he, had he had surgery had a on it. On his yeah, vocal but cords. that's the other thing is he also had vocal notes. So he well, had I, this. Says, Wikipedia says it was from that. I don't, I don't know. know. Um, anyway, so he was going through all of this stuff while writing this record, and on top of that, all the guys that were in the band were kind of coming after him to like put parts and songs for them, or trying to push parts on him so that they could have like writing credits and all of this different stuff. Yeah, And I think that when you finally hear about all of the stuff that kind of went on with that, how he was getting pushed to like write all of these different things, and then you listen to this record, it totally makes sense. Because you can hear yeah. how fucking dark it is, um, but also like how there are certain types of songs. Like uh, Caramelina, for example, Carmelina, or Andy yeah. Pop. Um, yeah. Both of those songs are like, quote unquote, like radio hits. Well, they're the two the, singles. Exactly. And then everything else on that record is dark as fuck or like kind of heavy. And it's, it's just such a weird dichotomy that when I got this record uh, fucking 19 years ago or whatever it was, and then being an adult now and listening to it, completely different approach and appreciation for what it is, knowing everything that's happened since then and happened during it. Um, it's crazy. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's most of my update on that yeah, also that's... he did a he did a music video with dale earnhardt jr <laughs> 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 which is uh, the future is x-rated right uh it's either that one or Andy pop it's one of the two of them I always whichever one has up. the uh 
the gnome they, in it. I think it's Annie Pop. I think it's oh, Annie okay. Pop. Okay. Yeah. yeah but Which, they, they you travel know around the world or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's, it's shitty because like he openly talks about the songs uh, in his career that he doesn't like. Uh, and Annie Pop is like the number one most hated song. And I actually really like that song. But when, again, when you hear him talk about it, it makes sense. Anyway, we'll do oh, Yeah. That's my yeah. favorite song on the album. Oh, really? Oh, really? Which, which is, I know. No, no. No, no. It's shocking because it, of how quickly it was written, it was like forced upon him to write the second single after the record was yeah. pretty much finished. It was kind of like then, uh, Deftones with White Pony. Yeah. And they're like, you have to write like another radio single. And he was like, oh, all right, I guess. And then he wrote the song. And with me, it just resonated. I just love that song. It's yeah. hooky. It sounds like Yeah. That. It's just, that's the thing with, with me, with Matthew Good is I'm not a huge, uh, like I'm not a huge, huge Matthew Good fan where I dive deep into his discography. I don't own any Matthew Good records with the exception of In a Coma, which is a greatest, it's a like a three CD or two CD thing with a DVD. And yes. the first CD is essentially a greatest hits, not featuring Annie Pop. And the second CD is some like it's split into three parts there's like a b-sides and um reworking of the hits yeah Yeah. which is funny enough as well because the song truffle pigs i think it's truffle pigs on uh on the audio being i actually like the acoustic version of it way more it is way darker and moodier oh cool and it's super creepy compared to i agree I agree completely. Compared to the album version, which almost has like an uplifting feeling to it with the chorus. And I find that really detracts from what I thought. The effectiveness of what it is. And it could have just been that I listened to that acoustic version so much before I heard the album version that that's just what I became programmed to thinking about. But no, that's, and I think that's fair too, because you have. That's kind of why I was saying I'm, I wasn't sure what to touch on as far as your career goes, mm-hmm. because what you're hitting on is what I kind of call phase two, which right. like he went into his solo career. He did that. He did that first record weapon. That's fucking awesome. Uh, but is, uh, is way more laid back than Matthew Good band stuff is. And then when the greatest hits, uh, like he did white light rock and roll, whatever it's called. And then when the greatest hits thing that you said came out, part of the deal with him doing that and allowing the label to go and do a, a greatest hits for him was that he wanted to go back and take the hits that he had, you know, accumulated over the years of being in Matthew Goodband and do them as how he would do them now. And yeah. so that's what those songs are. Like Strangers is in there. Uh, Hello Time Bomb's in there. And that's yeah. the, like, that's the song in that, in that collection where I'm like, that's weird. But like yeah. uh, Primetime... I was going to say, Primetime Deliverance, yeah. yeah. Uh, Apparitions is always the one that, like, that's my favorite Matthew Good song. Which makes sense. Board. It was it was the biggest song, arguably, he had for a long time before yeah, it was Strange Days kind of hit. So yeah, that, that song fucking rocks. Um, <laughs> it does. It's just a really, really well-written song. No, um, and I mean, at the end of the day, though, that's a summation of him. Yeah. Like, he continues to write that kind of song for... 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, like. But I feel like when you listen to the audio being, that's like, there's so many songs on that record that really show he was on, it's that kind of bridge between the hyper um, popular stuff he was writing in the 90s 
to his solo career because there's a yeah. lot of songs on this album that if I hadn't known they were Matthew Good Band songs, I would have thought they were just part of his solo uh, career because they have yeah. that vibe and that sound to them and they're, they're melodic, but they're not hooky, if that makes no, sense. No, it's they're true. Just, they just kind of flow and they're, they have like, you know, these big orchestral parts and, you know. It's See, just, I like, don't know anything from after this album. Like I really, I know the radio hit songs that are still on the radio today. But yep. like looking at his discography, it's huge. And I knew, like, I know nothing about it. So that's why I've been silent for the past like three minutes because you guys are obviously, even though I've done my research, like I've read through the Wikipedias and I, you know, read through reviews and things like that. I know nothing about any of this stuff still. And it's funny because I kind of took the, took the same route that you did, Alex, where Matthew Good is one of my top five favorite artists ever. But he's not somebody I talk about a lot because based on the genre of what we play, he's not, um, he's not referenceable, uh, especially outside of Canada. People aren't going to get that influence or that anything. But also, yeah. like, we play really heavy stuff. He doesn't. But to me, um, the thing that is undeniable about him and part of the reason I, I like him so much is his use. Like, I, my dad and I always used to call it having a sharp tongue. But it's like, he knows how to turn a phrase. He knows how to like word things in a way that they stand out. And he also really knows how to write like a, like a, a melodic hook, not like a pop hook, but just something that's got like yeah, a really nice vibe to whatever song he's trying to put together. He knows how to use melody in, yeah. in, in different ways than what would be in a traditional pop song. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say though, like, I can understand maybe from your perspective, Dan, why you like him so much, maybe as like a lyricist or as a songwriter, because he does have a weird way with lyrics. Like you look at the, the track under the influence and mm -hmm. the first few lines of that are, they're not gibberish, but he's talking about being like a pigeon and all this random crap that I'm like, what the fuck does this even mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's some it's weird symbolism within it that makes sense but to the outside listener who's not looking into it as deeply it sounds just like craziness and yeah. i think that 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 comes to how you listen to music too right like everybody we were saying in the last podcast like a drummer's going to notice the drums etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah um it's depending on what you find you relate to from a lyrical content is what's going to hit or miss and the thing i find with him is that if you look at, say, uh, Carmelina, that song was actually pretty big for the time. It just didn't get as much of a push because the band broke up. Also, uh, the music yeah. video for that song is amazing. Amazing. It's, amazing. So, it's so good. It's so oh, poignant. It. To, oh, please. <laughs> after we're off here, go and watch it. It's hilarious. But yeah, it's okay. also so poignant for where the band was at and like what's going on. Again, it's all hindsight with this record. Like yeah. knowing everything that happened and knowing all the turbulence, both like within the band, but also with Matt Good as a person, um, it all makes sense after the fact. But to try and kind of diverge back, the thing that I found was maybe the most key to his success is that when he's got a song that he knows has some kind of like commercial potential, it seems like he backs off the symbolism and the like heavy metaphor and kind of digs in a little bit more in a way that can reference people in. But the deep tracks are deep. And you got to kind of settle in for that. And yeah, for a I really long that. time, he was also really known for having 
uh, a politically uh, politically active blog that went along with most of the Matthew Good Band stuff. I don't know when the blog started, but it went through Beautiful Midnight Era, Audio Being Era, and into a good chunk of his solo record, uh, talking about whether it was uh, mental health and mental awareness or actual political um, things that are going on, whether it was US or worldwide or just in Canada. He's always been really outspoken about that kind of stuff. And so I also feel like the, that's kind of how he picks and chooses how to talk about stuff. You know, The blog was way more to the point. The music was a bit more shielded. And if you were involved in all of the stuff that was going on with him, it would make a lot of sense. But if you were more of the casual listener, then talking about Radio Shack in 1997 would catch on with you because that was a thing, you know? Absolutely. It made way more sense. Exactly. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We have a sponsor? We do now. Hot sleeves for everybody. Hey, everybody. Uh, It's Dan just kind of jumping in here to interrupt the podcast for a minute. We just really wanted to take a chance to mention that we have a uh, merch sale going on over at our Cut Loose merch store. Um, All of the money that we're raising through this is going to CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Uh, So what is the sale, you, you ask me? Or you're like, hey, shut the fuck up. Well, I'm not going to. Uh, The sale we're running is for the last few available copies of Failed Gods. We found a few in our jam space, so we're throwing them up online, as well as $5 off, so they're only 15 bucks right now. As well, we also have a brand new t-shirt that we're running kind of as like a pre-order thing for a few weeks. Uh, Snag it directly from the site, and all of this money that we're making from the LPs and the shirts and whatever else we end up selling through there is going to go to KMH. Uh, considering everything that's going on with uh, COVID-19 and everybody just kind of being out of their routine, we thought it was a way that we could try and make a, just a little difference for everybody. So if you're into it, please um, consider snagging something off there. Financially speaking, if you're not in the position to uh, do something like that, which is totally fine, no pressure. Uh, you know, maybe just to make a mention of it uh, some way just to help us get the word out or uh, maybe there's another way that you can kind of help out with something like that. So anyway, uh, that's all for me. Uh, Like I said, if you want to be able to support or you have the means to support, uh, visit our Cut Loose merch store. Uh, I'll make sure that it's linked all over our socials and, uh, you know, snag yourself something fancy while you're sitting at home getting fat and sassy. That was an odd reference. Okay, back to the podcast. All right, welcome back. This is uh, the second part of our season two, episode three episode, Mothband Prophecies, Sparrow's podcast. We are talking about the album, The Audio of Being by the Matthew Good Band. Alex... You haven't really said a whole lot about this yet. I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, sure. Well, I've, I've kind of stayed quiet because even though I did listen to this album like crazy and then, you know, I did some research and stuff, you guys have so much more like personal experience with it. And as Dan said earlier, oh, I'm kind I have of like stories a, to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit younger than you guys. And it, you know, this album came out when I was 11 and, uh, 
just from there, like I've been, I'm aware of who Matthew Goodband is, but to be honest for a long time, if you played me a song of his and a song by uh, Dave Matthews, I would have been like, I don't know who's who. <laughs> and, <laughs> but no, yeah, okay. that's, that's just that generation that I came from. Like I had no idea to differentiate these two people because they were kind of interchangeable in my mind. There is, it's just really quick, I'll let you keep starting, but just because you brought that up, I remember I went to see him a bunch of years ago, like the year I moved out of my house, and he made a joke about the fact that him and Dave Matthews had talked about trying to tour together, and they were going to call it the Dave Matthews Good Band, or (laughs) Dave Matthews Good Tour or something, and uh, they had been going for so long on this idea that they had actually started to think that it was happening. And then we're really bummed out when they were like, oh, no, no, this is actually just a joke that we've carried on for so long that we can't let go of it. Well, funny enough as well, for people that listen to our music more that might be around our age, even a little younger, if you're familiar with the band from first to last, their lead singer or their primary songwriter is also named Matt Good. But with oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So every time I would, you know, names would come up, I would, because when I was in high school, I was listening to these two bands, you know? Yeah. It was always, it got a little confusing every now and then, but anyways, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I actually, I knew that about the first last guitar player, songwriter, whoever, but I didn't make that. I don't know why I just didn't connect that both of them are named that until right now. But yeah, so for the actual, <laughs> anyways, uh, so this album, listening to it, like, it was kind of what I expected, to be honest, uh, knowing about Matthew Good, like from the singles and things, and especially learning about which songs were the singles and and then reading about the history about how the band broke up and how he, you know, he got really sick and he wrote, Matthew Good got really sick and he wrote this album in like a Whistler hotel while he was going through his throat surgery recovery. So he wasn't able to sing anything while he was, you know, uh, writing. Covering. But it was also that period in the band where it was like there was a lot of tension. And I think you could kind of tell that there wasn't going to be too much more of the band after this. I I I would agree. He was always kind of a a unique personality. Um, I don't know if there were rumors that he was, you know, harder to work with or he was always very sarcastic. And um, he was kind of like, I don't want to say the bad boy, but he kind of had that persona for a little bit. Um, I kind of gathered that the other guys were kind of dicks, though, as well, you know? I think it was just a bad situation all around. And they got so massive from the previous uh, albums that the label pushed them so hard. Like, with the song Antipop, they came back and said, we need another single on this entire Mm -hmm. album. It's, I don't know, that would kind of be over the line for me a little bit to throw in another single that, you know, they wrote it and it sounds like it came after the album because the label asked for it. I don't know. But a lot of the album kind of sounds like the situation that they were in. Totally. Um, I agree. And that's kind of what I was saying with before of like being able to look backwards after knowing all this stuff, you mm -hmm. can definitely hear all the tension and everything that was there. Um, yeah, continue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so my favorite song on the album was track seven, the fall of man. Oh Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then 
to be honest, nothing else really stood out for me as like, oh, I like this. Like everything else was fine, but the fall of man is the only song that I go back to. And like, I don't know that I remember. It's heavy. Yeah. Man, Carmelina like is. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of, I'm kind of shocked that that's not your favorite song just because that was the first single. It's, it's just got such a big chorus and a big riff and. Yeah, well, besides uh, The Fall of Man, Carmelina is the next best song for me. But it's still, I don't know, it kind of didn't hit. Dave Matthews in general kind of just doesn't hit. Matthew Good. Well, just because I made that mistake, that kind of shows that it just doesn't hit the right heartstrings for me to be like super passionate about it. But it's, it's not that it's bad. I think I just wasn't of the generation where it was huge, right? Like it's, it's just like, not impactful. It's looking at... I, I want to try to draw a comparison by saying that how you feel about this record is sort of how Dan felt about the Carnival record we did last week, where it's yeah, it's palpable, but it's not something that you would necessarily go out of your way to listen to on a daily basis. Yeah, like if out, Dan played this in the van, experience. like if we listened to this for an entire day in the van on tour, I wouldn't be upset about it. No, But, uh, you know, it's not something that I would choose to put on in the van. Totally. Uh, Dan, what's, what are your, what's your favorite track? Well, it's, it's funny because it kind of depends. Like Alex was saying with the fall of man, I love that song. Uh, but it's to me is also kind of just a weird Matthew good song because yeah. I don't know any other part of his discography at all where something goes that heavy. And I mean that in like a dynamic range. It's like, he's always been kind of like heavy lyrical content or heavy, heavy tone, but like he's never written what I would almost call like that's more of like a like a hardcore song than anything else. But like, and I mean that in a, in a Matthew good way. Like I'm holding up yeah. quotes <laughs> while I'm saying this. It's not a hardcore song, but it's heavy for him. But um, Tripoli is a good one. Um, well, it's funny you bring up Tripoli because yeah. that uh, when that song came on, because again I'm so used to hearing it uh, from the acoustic version that I have that it really reminded me of one of our songs in a sense because it has that bass line that kind of drives the song. Yes. Our Savior Left Us For Dead, or as we have a different name for it, but it's the second last track off Let The Silence Stay Where It Was. And uh, I just that song has this, this bass line that just is kind of this repetitive, repetitive thing that, that starts the song and kind of drives the song just like our song does. So it really, I don't know. And it's funny, like, that's a, that's another song that listening to it now, I'm going, oh, wow, people would listen to these two songs back to back and think that we we ripped that off. Um, kind of like I did with a, a song in a band when I was younger, and I, I wrote this drum beat, and then later on people kind of, you know, brought my attention to this Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song that had almost the exact same drum beat. So it... Oh, yeah, I did that too. With, with guitar stuff. I mean that I mean that just happens as musicians, but yeah. Um yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. The thing um with Tripoli that I think is like I kind of go back and forth a little bit if I'm being honest here, because Tripoli and Truffle Pigs I really, really like. Um, but I, if I'm I also really like the last song, sort of a protest song. Mm-hmm. And I like it all for very different reasons. Like Truffle Pigs is fucking dark. Tripoli is fucking dark, but it doesn't, neither of them really feel that way. Sort of a protest song is, sounds like a dark song, but kind of isn't. 
And so yeah. I kind of like how the dichotomy shifts on those are different. And that was actually uh, a song that, that Matthew Good actually stated that he really liked. Yeah. Yeah. Which made yeah. me excited to hear it. But then, to be honest, like it kind of didn't hit that chord with me that it seems to hit with you guys. Like it's a fine song and everything, but especially <laughs> especially reading about Dave Matthews or fuck I, again, Matthew Good was saying that uh, you know that was his favorite song on the album. I was like, really? Like out of all the songs, that's the favorite of his. But I think that's kind of what I was saying before, or in what you also touched on too, of like you can hear he's coming out of it. And that song, when you start leading into his solo stuff, if you start diving into that part of his discography, it totally makes sense. Um, it's a little bit like, as you go farther into it, I don't want to say he turns into a folk artist because he doesn't, but it's definitely more... Um, no, he's got that adult contemporary-ish Sort of, yeah. He's kind of like a Billy Bragg, but also like with a full band. And like, I don't know, it's, it's different. It's its own thing. Um, but I think that's part of the reason why he identifies with it. And for me, it's like this entire record has such a dark tone overall. And it's part of the reason I like it. But the shift in how that tone moves around is why I find things uh, interesting. Like, you know, Fall of Man is a dark song. You know it from the time you, it starts all the way through. There's yeah. no lyrical bump. There's nothing. But when you listen to fucking Tripoli, it's borderline a sad pop song, but then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, oh my God, you're going to kill yourself. Like, yeah. it's so dark, but you don't sonically hear that. And yeah. sort of a protest song to me is the opposite, where the, the beginning of it and the guitar line has that kind of like subdued, not quite sad, but it's definitely just darker. But then the whole hook and the, the vocal and the, the chorus and everything is really not that sad at all. And that's kind of what does it for me within this record. Like I can listen to it front to back, be happy, never touch it. But the songs that really stand out for me are the ones that kind of go above and beyond what the standard feeling of the record is or fuck with the, the formula for what that, that feeling is, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the song As I Tripoli, finished... I, I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, I figured I'll jump in for, uh, yeah. since we've been talking about this for a while, like Tripoli, I thought it was a great song. Um, it's definitely one of like in the group of songs that I enjoyed more than others, except for the end part, like with the children's chorus. Part, <laughs> I fucking hated that. And every time it would come up, cause I just listened to this album on repeat while doing homework and playing video games, whatever. And every time that chorus would start, I'd scramble to be like, Oh, skip to the next song. I fucking hated that bit. Well, that's how <laughs> I feel about with advertising on police cars. That song to me does nothing. I don't really yeah. like that song. It's probably my least favorite song on the album. It just, it's a song I could just skip. See, I feel the same way too, but not in a, like, I want to skip it. It's, I heard it too much. Like, I'm, I'm over it. You know what I mean? It's just um, it's long and it's just like kind of, I don't know. It just really doesn't do anything for me. The, I almost feel like the reimagined one that's on the uh, greatest hits one, it's, yeah. signific it's significantly better. Yeah. But um, w the reason I started laughing is because Alex was talking about the kids uh, <laughs> singing at the, the end. Length. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but as Alex started saying that, because I'm listening to it right now, the kids started singing. <laughs> and so as soon as he was like, oh, I fucking hated that. I'm like, that's in my ears right now. <laughs> but no, I, I agree. If I had to choose a song I, to take off of this record, 
advertising on the police cars would be it because I feel like it's the least successful um, song trying to get uh, a feel and an eye. Like it doesn't feel like it's about anything. It's, it doesn't really succeed in getting a mood there entirely. I do like the piano line, but yeah. I also feel like if you cut that song in half and had the piano line come in just for the last little bit, the song becomes a lot better. But again, I'm complaining about a record that I would say give a nine to. And so this song is probably a six and I'll still listen to a six any day of the week, really. So it's just kind of that relative to what everything else is. I also, we haven't quite touched on it yet, but the first song on the record is seven minutes long. And I I always felt like it didn't really feel like it was that long. And then as I started to look into Matt Good more, he tends to do that. Like the first song on a lot of the records, uh, Beautiful Midnight, uh, Hospital Music, which is in his solo record, they're like fucking long songs right off the bat. And that's kind of ballsy to like not start with a single or not start with something upbeat or whatever. It's like, just fuck it, let's go, you know? I mean, it is a good opening song. It's great. It, it definitely kind of swells into, I think it's a really good place setter for where the album's going. Like it's kind of in the middle ground. It's not yes. super heavy. It's not super light. It's got dark riffs. It's got an upbeat part. It's got a big kind of melodic orchestral part. Like it, it really sets the tone for what you're going to hear throughout the rest of the album. And it's got a strong rock chorus. Absolutely. Whereas I feel like the rest of the record, with the exception of Antipop, doesn't really have a big, strong rock chorus. Like oh. Carmelina's got a chorus to it, but it's not in that like, I don't even know, like, it's not a Foo Fighters chorus, if that makes sense. Right. Where, um, the, you know, like, Annie Pop has that big chorus that just jumps up on top of everything else. And I would say that the, the opening track on this, too, which I name I can't pick out of my ass right now. Man of Action. Um, Man, of action. Man of Action. I feel like that chorus has that, too. That big Foo Fighters style kind of, like, we're taking over sort of thing. So, Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think speaking about those big choruses and big, like, chunks of the song i think truffle pigs did that really well with the end uh yes where he's just like huge and singing out to their knees type of thing and yeah. i thought that was the arguably one of the best points of the whole album seriously listen to the acoustic version it'll yeah you'll hopefully love that song as much as i do sweet once you hear the acoustic version because it's just there's this uh, it's just the chorus of it in the album version just sounds too uplifting and the acoustic version is just so dark and dreary, and it's it's awesome. Well, yeah. I felt that w- listening to that part, I was listening to that part as I was reading that he was basically stuck in his hotel room, unable to sing, but while writing. So I feel like that part was a part that he wrote in his head and was unable to do it. I don't know why I just got that feeling. Because it's so high, that's something that would be impossible for him to sing at the time of him writing it. But I There's it also... Really cool. There's also a really dark note in there because um, he's, he's saying, damn, I'll bring them to their knees. And then the last one, he says, Jen, I'll bring them to their knees. He was married to a woman at that point in time who was more of a part of the chaos of what was going on. Like she was basically uh-huh. married to him because of the fact that he was famous. And um, he didn't realize it, but she was like spending his money out partying she was fucking hiding drugs in their apartment for like other people that she was friends with. And like, not a little bit, like a lot. Um, and there's a bunch of just like, I don't know how true some of these stories are. These are the ones I've just heard him like talk about. 
but like it was that was all going on as well uh shortly after this record came out is when that sort of started falling apart too so to listen to that and again know in hindsight what was going on behind the doors of everything it's also kind of like a dark note in there that i'm sure originally that's supposed to be like a nice like little you know uh what do they call easter egg thing yeah Yeah, like a dig at Um, her kind of subtly but no because this was written before all this happened Mm. so he's trying to be positive there yeah and it turned into a fucking nightmare exactly so i just i remembered listening to that and thinking about i wrote a note about how i should mention that so um that's yeah so I like that you noticed that high note there too, though, because that the first time I ever listened to this record, I remember trying to sing that for like a year, trying to get my voice to go that high. And I still can't really do it now, but then I was so determined and my parents would always just be like, can you shut the fuck up? Like, why are you making that noise? It's hilarious. So anyway. not even recognizing it as singing. Just what is that? No, because it's just like, just like horrible. Like, oh. Teenage Dan had no restraint. My ears are <laughs> bleeding right now. <laughs> Great. Well, on that note, uh, any final thoughts? I have a couple of stories, if you guys are into it. Absolutely. Um, I will keep them short, but it was mentioned a little bit before in here that uh, Matt Good was kind of known as an asshole. And that comes from two different things. One, when he was in the U.S., he like basically purposely bombed his record over there because he was getting treated horribly by like us press and us, like all the label people um, were just like treating him like a pile of shit because in the nineties being a Canadian is way worse than it was now. And now it's not that great anyway, when it comes to music business stuff. So we're talking like mid nineties, he's down there and they're not, they're just treating him like shit. So he decided to be like, fuck this. Why do I need to care if I'm famous in the States or not? And so he basically just started telling people exactly what he thought about everything. And that tanked them there. But because of that, it also became kind of a joke with Matt Good and their management and everybody else. And so they started printing t-shirts that said, I heard Matt Good is an asshole. Uh-huh. And they sold I so well. That, actually. Yeah, they sold so well that they were almost like a mainstay for Matt Good Band merch until the end of their fucking life of the band. Well, and isn't that it was supposed of- to just be a joke. Like it was supposed to be just this weird thing that they all thought was funny because of that. It, it also says here that in the CD packaging, like on the the hub of the disc, it would say, "Help us get rid of Matthew Good Band." Yeah, you know, just these little like tongue in cheek, yeah, sarcastic quotes that you know. There's a few different ones like that too. Like the re there's there. I don't know if I have this story, right. But the reason in the uh, beautiful midnight layout that he's wearing a monkey mask in there is because the joke was, if they don't see his face, they don't know it's him. And so it was always that kind of like, we were playing into the fact that you guys think that I'm a dick. So I might as well make it seem like I'm a dick. Um, but my, my personal counteract to that is when I first moved to Ottawa, um, there was a radio station there called The Bear. Is it The Bear that's in Ottawa? Yep. Okay. And there used to be this old venue called Capital Music Hall. Doesn't exist anymore, but it was kind of like the same idea as Opera House. It was just a little smaller. Um, and Matt Good was supposed to be playing there on his solo tours. Like, I think the, maybe the, uh, the second solo record or something. 
And the only way that you could get tickets to the show was to win it on the radio. You had to call in at a certain time and you would get tickets. And so he showed up in Ottawa and while he was doing press on the radio station, he found out that's the only way you could get tickets. And he was like, what the fuck? Like my actual fans can't just go and buy a ticket to come. So he, when he found this out two days before, the next day he went out and rented Zaphods with his own money and did a free show, all request, play whatever you want. And he played for two and a half hours. And that's pretty, that's I, pretty awesome. it was awesome. And I, I think I'd been living in Ottawa at this point for like two weeks. And so I walked down, I stood in line all day and I got to watch it. And he was playing like fucking super rare B-sides at that point. Like people didn't really have like huge access to. He played a couple of cover songs. He did all the like Matt Goodband songs that he always talks about hating. He was just out there doing it, um, you know, talking with people in the audience. It was like super casual and very, again, out of character for the famous Matt Good that everybody thinks about. So I got to do that and that was awesome. And then the next day was supposed to be the show in Ottawa. And my, I used to work down the street when I first moved to Ottawa. I used to work down the street from Capitol Music Hall. So I was walking home and I saw him outside just smoking. And so I went over and I was like, hey, I was at your show yesterday. Thank you for you know, doing that because it's nice that because I can't come to this show that I'd be able to see you do that and kind of get that experience. And he's like, well, do you want to come and watch now? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. And so he let me stand on the side of the stage and he did his whole set at Capitol. And I just watched right from like the edge of the curtain for the whole night. And then at the end, he was like, thanks for coming. And I left. And it was amazing. Yeah. And I always tell that story to people that like have that Matt Good as an asshole moment. And they're like, no way. And I'm like, yeah, for real. Well, I, I had all of that happen in 48 hours. Like, I think it's because he, he used to have that rock star persona where he would just walk off stage in the middle of the yeah. set because he was unhappy with something or whatever. And then people would kind of the Guns N' Roses thing where people are standing there going, what the fuck is this? I paid money to see you. And yeah. Just, and you know, I, I remember they did on the history of new music, they did a thing with Matt Good. A talking kind of in different sections of episodes or whatever they would do like a 20 minute spot on him you know part one part two part three part four and i remember him saying he's like i won't leave a stage that people have paid to see me at but if i'm at a festival and some asshole guy is waiting for three days grace to come on starts throwing fucking beer bottles at me i'm not paid to be there to get a concussion i'm paid to play so there's no reason for me to stand up there and take that from someone who doesn't give a shit whether I'm there or not anyway. And I remember thinking like, it's kind of a shitty way to look at it, but I also get the logic behind it. Yeah. It you makes know? sense, but it's yeah. also from a, from a consumer and a fan perspective. Yeah. It's sucks. shitty for his fans to have to yeah. go through that. And I yeah. think that also is why he tours the way he does. Now he plays like, you know, closed venues a lot of times with seating now, like he's playing Massey hall or he's done like, I know he did the NAC in Ottawa a bunch of times. Yeah. Yep. And like, it's a more controlled environment. He still does the festivals here and there, but it's usually with stuff that's similar to his style. He's not trying to win people over. Like, you know, when you're a small band or a small artist at that time, and you have to play ahead of a band that you don't want to be playing with, yep. you know, like Sunny Day Real Estate opening for Nirvana. Like they didn't, they have to do that whether or not they want to. So. Well, and it, it arguably kind of worked out for, some of them. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I think that seems like a good amount of information on Matthew. Good. 
uh, I know we're going to have another episode coming out very shortly. We are, we have a couple guests lined up. We do. Podcast, yeah, we do exciting. have a couple of guests. We won't fancy. say who they are, who they are yet, but they are some good friends of ours uh, that reached out to us. Americans. 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 Yeah. That wanted to get in on this podcast. Uh, so that's very exciting. And we'll be talking with them later on this week. Yeah. I'm uh, extra excited because I don't know who they are at all. Yeah. I don't think I'm, you've ever even <laughs> met either of them. Never met, so. never talked about. One I yeah. haven't met in person. So like I've talked to a lot but I've never met in person. So that's also kind of interesting to me. At yeah. least anyway, online friends um, before we take off though, do you guys have anything else you want to say? Cause I just talked my face off for the last 10 minutes. No, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with my. No, he sense. You know what he, <laughs> Matt good is a staple in the Canadian music industry, especially in the rock, like, you know, genre. And this album did a good job of, you know, informing me why that is. So I'm happy oh, that we went through that. That's such guess, a nice I, way to say yeah. that. <laughs> I guess I should say I also did. I have fallen off of following him closely since he became a solo artist. I was more of a fan of the band than I am of his solo stuff. Um, I'm sure, though, if I gave it, you know, the time of day, I'd probably find some stuff I like about it. But it's definitely different. But I would agree. It's it's I feel like at the end of the day, he's more mood music now, unless you are like a diehard fan. Even for me, like there's a couple of records within the last maybe seven or so years that I've probably listened to once or twice and then been like, I'm good. Um, but that also just comes with how people's tastes change and whatnot. But I mean, to me, if people are going to try and dive in to Matt Good solo or band, I feel like you need to start with underdogs and then just work your way over because it'll start to like logically makes sense as you're going oh yeah make, it um, makes sense progressionally absolutely absolutely yeah and it also gives people an idea of, of like like realistically what was going up going on up here while everybody was focused on like Soundgarden, you know yeah, so you totally. get a little bit of that idea of what our oh yeah that makes sense yeah. yeah i never really thought about that that this was happening at the same time as like that entire grunge scene yeah exploding. it like like Nirvana had already been a thing and then everybody kind of following through. It's kind of like that, the first Our Lady Peace record. Like I like that one because it sounds like the nineties. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's Nostalgic. literally, yeah. It's like Canadian rock encompassed in a record. It yeah. And I feel like everything. that, I feel like Matt Good to me, at least anyway, is like the best version of that. But I would also like throw him in from a songwriter standpoint with a lot of like, at least for me, higher touted songwriters too, you know, like, um, he, he would be in the same conversation for me as like, you know, braid and those kind of bands as well. So like right. there is some crossover. It just depends on what you, what you are into as far as that kind of music goes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to reach out to the podcast, as always, you can reach us at sparrows613 at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, recommendations, pictures of you want to whatever be a guest. you're doing if you want to be a guest uh if you yeah recommendations for albums we should listen to please reach out we are always willing to take your thoughts uh yeah quarantine yep quarantine 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 yeah so yeah check out brand theft auto 5 so i'm doing that yeah we're going to talk so many good. movies. As soon as we're done this, you're going to tell me why I shouldn't buy PlayStation 4. 
I'll tell you. Yeah, All I right. got you. All right. Well, on behalf of myself, <laughs> Alex, Dan, thank you for listening to the Mothman Prophecies of Sparrows podcast. Good night. Bye. Bye. Think it would dead somehow. Somehow we're still.